Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 19 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, Components of Sustainable Development, What About Equity? I'm joined by Dr. Russell Fricano from the planning program of the Urban and Regional Studies Institute at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Dr. Fricano brings to URSI over 20 years of professional planning experience and seven years of teaching in higher education. He works, uh, his work has included the training and assessment of urban planning practitioners and students, research and community outreach. Dr. Fricano has served as a section head for Los Angeles County Department of Regional Planning, an organization which provides planning services to the nation's most populous county. He also applied his experience in teaching and training students with, with planning practitioners. He has also served um, in other educational environments, including being an instructor in environmental planning and policy, planning theory, urban economics and planning studio at Alabama A&M University. At URSI here at MSU Mankato, he currently teaches courses such as long range and strategic planning, urban design, transportation planning, program evaluation, community leadership, and many more. So thank you for joining me today. So of course, well, first of all, I'm going to stumble, stumble over the word sustainable 50 times, I think, but let's start off with it. Why did you want to call your podcast Components of Sustainable Development? What about equity? What does that mean? Well, sustainable development is at the forefront of urban planning, and it's a primary approach to climate change. And sustainable development consists of three components known as the three E's. We have environment, equity, and economy. And these are supposed to be considered equally or at least in a, in a balanced way. Now, I once did some research in Google Scholar to determine how much attention is given in scholarship to each of these components. So I typed in three phrases in the search engine, sustainability and the environment, sustainability in the economy, and sustainability in equity. For a sustainability environment, I had 3,380,000 results. For a sustainability and economy, I had 2,720,000 results. However, in sustainability and equity, there were only 1,530,000 results. Now, if we were to add up all these results, um, only 20% of these works are devoted to equity. Very interesting. So uh, you used a couple of phrases here that I'd, I'd like you to define a little bit for our listeners. So when you talk about sustainable and environment, what does that mean to you? A sustainable environment, and I'll, I'll get into this shortly, okay. going by the Brundtland Commission, where we have to preserve our resources for future generation. Okay. And, um, and we also have developed, uh, do consider approaches that reduce some um, greenhouse gases that are attributed to climate change. Excellent. Well, I figured you were probably going to cover it. I just wanted to make sure. So, sure. so, so what do you attribute to the low coverage of equity and sustainable development? Well, um, a, a number of things. I wanted to first talk about the Green New Deal by 
Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez. And I took great interest in reading it. And when I see provisions like reduction in greenhouse gases, clean air and water, cleaning up hazardous waste, zero emission energy resources, to me, that's all plausible because it's environmental. But when you consider other provisions of the same resolution, right of workers to organize, unionize, and collectively bargain, high quality education, non-discrimination, create millions of good highway jobs, it, it sounds more like a wish list. And the point I'm trying to make is that the traditional model of standalone development is weak on equity. And it's not as obvious as the other components. And I think there's only a tenuous connection. But um, in terms of why I feel there is low coverage of equity and sustainable development, there's four factors. First, it's how sustainable development was initially conceived. So let's look at the report that started the Bruntland Commission report, uh, Our Common Future, that was published in 1987. Now, this report was mainly a response to climate change, which is primarily the environmental issue, which is pr it's primarily an environmental issue. And the Brunton Commission did not adequately discuss equity in comparison to the other components. It discusses equity, mainly in terms of citizen participation, inequity in property ownership, resource depletion, and environmental impacts. So with that is an insurance that the poor get the fair share of resources that are required to sustain growth. And equity would be aided by political systems that secure effective citizen participation in decision-making and greater democracy in international decision-making. But uh, to me, this sounded more ideal than real. The report also discusses intergenerational equity, meeting the present needs without compromising the ability of the future generation to meet their needs. Another issue I have with sustainable development is that it has contradictions all its own. The model of sustainable development has competing outcomes, which lead to contradictions. And these take three forms. You have a property conflict, a resource conflict, and a development conflict. Now in a property conflict, that's a conflict between economic growth and equity. So first, if you want to redevelop a neighborhood, but the neighborhood gentrifies, what happens? Property values increase due to redevelopment and leads to increase in taxes and rents. And eventually the low income residents can no longer afford to live there and they're forced to relocate. Then you have a resource conflict. It's between growth and environmental protection. For example, say um, we want to strengthen our economic development. And so we clear an environmentally sensitive land to build a factory. Well, that's a property conflict because you're weighing the, the jobs and the increases in tax revenue versus the, the environment. And gr other green industries have this problem too. Now, when, we, when natural land is cleared to produce methane crops, um, the destruction of the area leads to what we call a carbon debt. When you take out a natural area, it takes decades to regain um, the environment where it used to be in that area. And also with um, methane crops, you have corn, artichokes, soybean, those are food crops. And so basically, instead of feeding people, we're feeding automobiles. Then there's a development conflict. There's a conflict between social equity and environmental preservation. Say for example, that residents suffering from malnutrition want to cultivate a garden 
a community garden on a vacant parcel of land in their neighborhood. But the city wants to maintain an urban forest to reduce carbon footprint. Well, you can't eat trees, but um, it certainly um, an urban forest um, goes a long way in reducing the carbon footprint. Urban agriculture does in some ways, but there you have you know, competing projects with pretty much some of the same objectives. And the third, a third issue is a matter of semantics, the term green. When you think of green, you think of the natural environment, forests, trees, vegetation, but we don't envision equity. So let's consider the green building practices that's promoted by the US Green Building Council. These practices reduce pollution, energy, and conserve natural resources, but they don't cover equity impacts. And this is also apparent in Green Building's LEED certification. It's spelled L-E-E-D, and it stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. But none of those E's stand for equity. So in our own backyard in the state of Minnesota, the Minnesota Green Step Cities is a voluntary challenge, assistance, and recognition program. And this helps cities achieve their sustainability and quality of life goals. And this is managed by a public-private partnership, and it's based upon a menu of 29 optional best practices. Now, none of these 29 best practices explicitly state anything about social equity. So that's really interesting. And thank you for defining methane crops because I had no idea what you were talking about. But really what you're talking about here is even if somebody maybe of a middle or lower income wanted to develop or make their area sustainable, it would be really expensive for them to do that, like installing solar panels or better insulation or better materials that they really don't have the ability to do that, that somebody who is well off economically could. So so you, um, you talked about low coverage. So how do we strengthen this equity component of sustainable development? Is it all about money? Well, uh, not necessarily, but um, I'd like to talk about, first of all, how, why low coverage exists and then get into some approaches. Now, there are some ways that equity is already considered, but it's not been considered directly through sustainability. The first is environmental justice. And environmental justice movement is a blend of civil rights and environmentalism. And it basically asks, do people of color or low-income groups bear a disproportionate burden of environmental impacts? And in his book, Dumping in Dixie, Robert Bullard contended that the location of hazardous waste sites are based on racial characteristics of communities. And environmental justice issues also occurred in urban renewal programs. Urban renewal after World War II was not successful. And in the name of redeveloping cities, it demolished established neighborhoods and it relocated its residents in multi-story tenement houses. And where did they locate these housing projects? Next to freeways. So back in the 50s and 60s, automobiles, trucks, and buses did not have pollution control devices and they didn't burn cleaner fuels. And so these poor residents were breathing in carbon monoxide diesel emissions, ozone, and lead, and they suffered from respiratory illnesses. So relief finally came in Executive Order 12898, which was passed in 1994. And under the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, in an environmental review process, a jurisdiction 
must identify and address disproportionately high and adversely human health or environmental effects in their actions on the minority or low-income populations. And this is done to the greatest extent permitted by law. So it's now standard practice that you, when you do an environmental review, you have to include environmental justice impacts. I did one when I was a planner. And then we have sustainable transportation. And this has also addressed equity in certain ways, though not entirely. Well, first of all, I find that there's a strong overlap between environmental and equity components when we talk about transportation. So if commuters give up their car for public transit, that reduces greenhouse gas emissions. But oh, there's also an equity side to it. When you think of transit options for the disadvantaged, you think of public transit. And not only for low-income riders, but also for seniors and the disabled. And for households without automobiles, um, public transit provides access to the basic necessities of life, employment, grocery shopping, and healthcare. But we also have to be careful. Now, when we think about modern public transit, most of us would envision light rail. And right now, the planning profession, it's enamored with trains. But light rail is limited. It only runs on a fixed track. And if you can't ride a bus to a light rail station, or you can't drive to a park and ride, you simply don't have access. And neighborhoods around light rail st stations can gentrify. Development forms along the transit station. It raises property values. Rents go up. And disadvantaged can't afford to live near them anymore. So light rail is also regional in nature. And, it, and for that reason, it tends to serve more affluent suburban riders. So transit agencies also favor light rail because it's more cost effective. You need less personnel to run it. And your primary costs are capital costs. But buses are more labor intensive and you have to consider human resource costs, well, employee benefits and the, and the rest. So buses may not seem as glamorous as trains, but we still need them and clean buses. And in urban areas, bus routes are ubiquitous. We even have them in Mankato and low income and disabled rely very much on them. Um, another strategy that can be a double-edged sword is mixed-use development. And this has been dubbed the Europeanization of America. In a mid-rise building, we have commercial use on the ground floor with apartments on top. So instead of driving out to a coffee shop or a pharmacy, tenants can simply patronize the ones that are in the same building. No car needed. And new urbanists claim that this type of development by virtue of it having apartments is providing affordable housing, which is a social good. Or are we really doing that? Um, well, you have to consider the ultimate rent of these apartments. This type of development is also trendy and it could command higher rents. And if apartment rents for 3,000 to 4,000 a month, which I've seen in Marina Del Rey, that is not affordable. So from that, we turn to how we strengthen the equity component. So first is inclusivity. In some ways, I'm going back to the Bruntland Commission report, which focuses on citizen participation. But the key word here is meaningful participation. Um, so if you're in a neighborhood where the dominant language is not English, you have to use interpreters at community meetings and public hearings. Another issue is the digital divide. And that comes from relying completely on social media to get the word out. 
If you rely on Facebook and Twitter, you can make three fatal assumptions. First of all, everyone owns a computer. And secondly, everyone that owns a computer has internet access. And third, everyone that has internet access uses social media. So some citizens feel overwhelmed at the technical analysis that accompanies an environmental review. So it's the responsibility of planners to educate them on the process and make it easier for them to comprehend. And on a further point I would like to make about being inclusive is that citizen participation can be constrained by the law. One of my former students at Alabama A&M explored citizen perception of empowerment and redevelopment of brownfield sites in low-income African-American neighborhoods in downtown Birmingham, Alabama. And residents did not feel um, their power in the process did not go beyond tokenism. In other words, they were given information about the projects and given an opportunity to provide feedback, but there was no guarantee their feedback was followed and they were not involved in higher levels of decision-making. And this could very well be due to legal constraints in CERCLA. CERCLA stands for Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act of 1980. And this governs brownfield redevelopment process. And it requires government agencies to seek public input on projects. However, on higher levels of participation, such as citizen partnerships, involvement in decision-making, it's silent. And so a public official may say, well, that's all we may need to do, give them information, get their feedback, and that's it. Then there's proactive policies that we could consider. Mixed use is usually accompanied with higher density, which is a good thing. And there's a policy known as density bonuses, which allows the developer to build more units if the developer agrees to provide certain percentage of units to affordable housing, usually it's about 20%. So developer, um, more units means a higher profit. However, you have to form an ironclad agreement with a developer to make this happen. I've seen cases where developers will promise higher density on the project just to get it approved. And they come back later, oh, gee, I, I really can't afford this. You know, we, we've got to cut back on the affordable units. So you have to make sure there's a strong contractual agreement in place for this. The third is to look at equity impacts behind development proposals. Norm Krumholtz served as a planning director for the city of Cleveland, Ohio, and he's renowned as being a very socially conscious planner. And if you've been to Cleveland, you'll note an impressive redevelopment of the waterfront. You've got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, new ballparks, and so on. But Krumholtz looked beyond the glamor of these projects and asked, who's really benefiting from this? The people are the developer. So another thing you can do, you could take some of these green solutions that I mentioned and make it equitable. So if you build a new park to reduce carbon footprint of a city, you make sure low-income residents have access to its facilities. You can also be proactive in preserving neighborhoods. One scheme for addressing gentrification is to form a tax increment financing district in the redevelopment area and use some of the proceeds from the district to fund affordable housing or keep low-income housing taxes stable. And then you also look for social equity in existing development. Now, most of planning is not about designing utopian cities, as a lot of people may think it is. You're basically working with development that's already constructed, and that's been around for years. So the questions you can ask might be, 
Are low-income neighborhoods located in areas subject to flood hazard? Do neighborhoods have sufficient places to shop for food? We have what are called food deserts, where there aren't uh, places that sell nutritious food for miles. Do local businesses hire people that live in the neighborhood? Um, is there any way we can provide affordable housing in an area zoned for single family? In this way, low-income residents have better access to suburban development. Right now, the city of Minneapolis is considering those types of approaches. So the challenge lies in what's called not in my backyard or NIMBY attitudes of putting these issues on the local agenda. Now, by all means, Pat, this isn't an exhaustive list of approaches, but it, it tests our creativity. So the bottom line to me is that we have to be proactive and we have to revisit and take a close look at the paradigm of sustainable development and also look at its related legislation and find ways to expand and strengthen the equity component. Well, that's great. That's such great information. I do have a couple of questions that I've, I hope don't put you on the spot too much, but you mentioned how high density, especially in urban areas, is a good thing, right, for equity and sustainable development. Um, so how do you address the people that are in the NIMBY mindset of a single family neighborhood where there's a high density uh, development proposal? How can you sell them on the fact that it is good, it is sustainable, and it's equitable? What, do you, what would two, you do? Two ways, aesthetics and amenities. Usually these developments come with new places to shop. They're beautiful structures too. Um, they fit in nicely. And that's usually a good sell for a project like this. The same approach is used with transit-oriented districts. Oh, that's actually a really great idea. And then you brought up food deserts. And we know, um, I know for a fact here in Minnesota, we have some in our urban areas. Mm -hmm. So then how do you balance out um, taking maybe an empty lot and saying that's a community garden versus being able to sell it to a developer who wants to put a high density housing on there? I mean, what would be the arguments on both sides? And would they both address equity? Well, so with some newer developments, some of them include community gardens. So you, you get kind of the best of both worlds there. But aside from that, planning is governed by a comprehensive plan. And it usually reflects the priorities of the community. And so there would be some policies in there that promote that. Not to say that that would automatically work because plans also have conflicting policies. But you would justify that based upon, you know, what's permitted in the zone. What does um, the comprehensive plan recommend for this particular area? And it's also subject to the public hearing process. But there are some ways in planning that you can also provide incentives. Like if someone wants to establish a community garden on their lot, you can give them a break on their property taxes because urban agriculture isn't the highest and best use of land. Um, so um, there, there's a number of ways you can do it using planning policies and, and different techniques. And, and of course, it's situational as well. So then I'm going to move a little bit outside the urban ring out into like that suburban semi-rural areas where we've seen maybe farmlands being brought, bought up by developers and they're putting in some housing that may not be high density, but there's definitely high capacity mm -hmm. type areas. How does that play into sustainable development and do, where do you see the issues with equity there? Well, um, what I'm thinking about that is what's called para-urban agriculture. It's agriculture on the urban fringe. 
And these areas are important to preserve because um, they produce crops um, like produce that are also perishable. And so you have to locate near cities to reduce the truck transport and to ensure, you know, fresher produce. Now, um, also these areas can serve as urban agriculture sites for cities that are land poor. I think they've had that issue in Boston. And uh, people from urban areas or senior citizens could go out to different lots in these areas and farm. Uh, what's really needed is interjurisdictional coordination. And that involves planning on a regional basis. Um, usually when you consider both urban versus rural together, that requires a regional form of planning. And um, a regional plan at the top would give very general uh, recommendations and then you get into more specifics as you work your way down to the local comprehensive plans. And what's good about regional planning involves coordinating between more than one jurisdiction. So with regional planning, uh, does it become harder to incentivize that, give them an economic, like a tax break or a tax increment financing if it's regional or does that make it easier? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think it's easier to do it on the local level because there's more control. And likewise, when you consider uh, growth or land use, most of decision-making is done at the local level. Now, they could be bound by the state or the planning region to follow some of these you know, regional directives, but it's primarily up to the local government um, to provide incentives or to control the land use in its jurisdiction. But certainly um, regional governments could give a break to local governments in certain ways too, like maybe um, exempting them from certain policies. Or, um, so I think there's a, a little um, room for adjustment there. All right, I'm gonna to go to one of the topics I know you've written on about sustainable development and a little bit about equity, but I think the last one I wanna to touch on is water, clean water. How can we ensure that when they're doing development that we also have clean water for everybody in the neighborhood and not just certain people, that type of thing? I'm thinking like a Flint, Michigan and larger urban areas, but water is important. Indeed it is. And even in the land of 10,000 lakes. <laughs> So, <laughs> but um, would you believe that most surface water in the U.S. is not drinkable? You have to treat it first. Mm -hmm. And part of the issue of the water supply is with stormwater runoff. And um, you have to put in what are called best management practices, natural ways of filtering water um, before it hits the water body. And you can do this a number of ways. Um, you may have seen a rain garden on an individual property. These pretty rain gardens filter rainwater before it goes into the groundwater. And once it goes through the soil, the soil purifies this as it gets down to the water table. Then you have detention ponds. And actually these are also aesthetically pleasing. They look like natural ponds, but you store rainwater or stormwater in them. And as they seep, into the ground, um, it gets purified and cleaned as it enters the water table. Um, but um, also using green infrastructure, in other words, natural ways of drainage, then putting in concrete. 
part of the issue with stormwater runoff is that when the rainwater hits concrete uh, drainage infrastructure or streets, it mm -hmm. picks up a lot of toxic elements like you know oil from the cars, fertilizer, pesticides, and all that goes drained into um, the, the water body. And so the major cause of water pollution, incidentally, is stormwater runoff. It's not the factory with the pipe as much anymore. And because the automobiles are everywhere, and um, when the rain hits the road and the water goes into the drain, then we have a pollution issue. We call that non-point, where we can't attribute it to just to one source, because um, Basically, we're all partners in crime if we drive our automobile on a rainy day. So really that green is important. It's not just having a concrete jumble, but having the green space and green uh, plant around it. So that's very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Well, do you have any other closing thoughts on equity and uh, sustainable development or anything that you'd like to champion as we go forward? Well, um, I'd like to go back to Norm Krumholtz, mm -hmm. and he questioned who really benefits from public action and sustainable development. And to me, really, that's the bottom line. And um, planning is comprehensive. We're supposed to look at the big picture. And sustainability is comprehensive, too. So I think, you know, we have to be proactive in, you know, recognizing that certain equity issues exist and find ways to address them. Oh, well, thank you. This has been so very interesting. And I probably have 500 more questions in my head, but uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise, Dr. Fricano. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Pat. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash let's talk gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening. <laughs>